it was A.W. Tozier who said, uh, next to Holy Scriptures, the greatest aid to the life of faith may be Christian biographies. Um, each year, since 2004, I've taken one saint in history and just kind of explained his life to you, both how God used him in the life of the church and the life of the world, but also some of the continuing implications of his life for us today. And so... Um, and the reason I do this is first, I think it's scriptural in Romans chapter 15, 4, uh, the, the saints of old are to instruct the saints of new. Uh, but also we see in Hebrews chapter 11, in Hebrews chapter 11, you have this, this hall of faith, if you will. You have all these saints that were waiting for the promises of God. And then in chapter 12 in Hebrews, he says that we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And many of us think that's angels. But I don't think it is. I think it's the saints in chapter 11. They're testifying to us of his greatness and his glory. And so this saint will do the same. So I think it's scriptural. Secondly, I think it's beneficial. It's beneficial in the sense that we're going to see a saint who is not perfect but used of God. You know, God's glory is often seen through our imperfections in ways that could be more clear than through our strengths. And so we're going to see a saint who is not perfect, and yet he was used of God. I'm hoping that you'll think, well, I have imperfections. That won't discount me from being used of God either. And then thirdly, I think it's essential for us to look at history and understand how God's faithfulness is across the ages. When we, when we think sometimes, you know, C.S. Lewis <clears throat> made a comment about that each generation uh, is subject to this threat of chronological snobbery, that because we are last in the line of human history, we just think we have it. We technologically advanced, and we know more than previous generations, and so somehow we're better than previous generations. But when we study the saints of old, we're impressed with, they're brilliant. They did great things with less means, and it humbles us, and it reminds us of the faithfulness of God. So the saint today, as you've heard, is uh, Abraham Kuyper. Many of you, that will probably be an unknown name. He was a Dutch politician, theologian, pastor, uh, educator, journalist, husband. Uh, he was born in 1837 in a town west of Rotterdam on the western side of that nation. Um, I chose him not just because he was a man of faith, but that his life integrated faith into culture in dynamic ways. In other words, he was raised in a time where there was theological weakness. There was great liberalism in the church, and yet he was extremely effective. You know, the church was being marginalized, relegated to the corners. We don't need the gospel in the public square. And yet he was a man that was uniquely gifted to bring the gospel to bear in the public square in the culture, and he was very, very effective at, uh, at really renewing the culture, I would say. Now, if you're here today and you think, well, um, you kind of look at the culture and you're thinking, we're on a downward spiral, there's no hope for it. I hope you're encouraged by this man's life. If you're here and you think of the culture as just inherently sinful and there's nothing you can do about it, I hope you're challenged by this. If you kind of take an ambivalent stance, the culture is what the culture is, I'm going to do my own thing then I hope you're likewise challenged by this because he was a man that affected change in his culture even though the winds were not blowing for him but against him. So here's how I'm going to do it. I'll just talk briefly about his uh, early years and then I'll look at his conversion 
and then I will show how his conversion affected the way he looked at life in various areas of life, and then I'll make some applications to us. So, as I said, he was born in 1837. His father was a pastor in a small fishing village. Um, he, he was, and his father was part of the National Church. So back in the 19th century in Holland, of course, you had, uh, you had the church and the state yoked arm in arm. He was part of the National Church, was part of the problem. Uh, he was a bright young man. He, proficient in languages, learned French and German before graduating high school. Uh, when he was in his teens, they moved to Leiden, uh, and a bigger city gave Abraham Kuyper greater potential to learn, went to better schools. In fact, he went to a prep school. He was a valedictorian. Uh, gave his talk in German. Uh, he then graduated summa cum laude from the university, and then he studied at Divinity School, or a theological school. Now, when he studied there, he met his wife-to-be, Joanna Shea. Uh, he was 20. She was 16. She was visiting her aunt in Leiden, and so they met there. Neither set of parents were enthused about the relationship. I think her parents, because of his age, but his parents were not enthused because she was not like them. In fact, they, um, they wanted him to wait for better prospects. Now, the same attitude was in their son when he wrote this to her. Never have I so fully recognized as since our engagement what a gulf exists between the business class and the learned folks. We are classically trained and, and you are not. But don't blame yourself, it's your family's fault. <laughs> he was a prince. His solution was to prescribe a daily reading program to get her up to speed. So he prescribed to her to begin reading Milton's Paradise Lost. Now, if you don't know that book, it's not a comic book. He was dismayed, actually, because she was drawn to Dickens and not Shakespeare. And the irony of all this will follow. So they have this relationship. Now, he graduates from divinity school and begins a doctorate in theology. Now, his theology at the time was what we would call modernist, or it would really be borderline Unitarian. Modernism, you know, we're going past the old ways, and orthodoxy kind of goes by the wayside. And, and he questioned many doctrines, like immortality. He would write to her and say, does needing it really make it true? She must have spoken to him about her need to believe in this. Or in terms of the atonement, he said, To me, forgiveness through the blood of Christ is completely unintelligible. Or the doctrine of revelation. How do you know Jesus has said such and such a thing? He even questioned her seeking God, or seeking at least a display of God in the heavens. He says this, he says, All material expressions of the divine are suspect. Seeing God's majesty in the stars is not religion. It's nothing more than a taste for religion. Religious feelings and a, a momentary upwelling of that feeling. His, his religion, his faith was much more spiritualized. He said, things, as a Unitarian, live everything material and feel God in your inmost parts. And then fervently thank him. As you know, you're human. And he has passed something of his spirit down to you. It's got this nebulous feeling is his understanding of God. And as a modernist, he tried, to, he tried to understand Christianity as though an allegory. In other words, it's a story about how we proceed and move through life to get to, perfect, to get to complete freedom. So that was his kind of theology. But God had other plans for him, and we're thankful for that. 
And, and the irony of this conversion is significant. First, in his studies, he would often stay up to 4 a.m. on repeated nights studying. He, he was an absolute diligent worker, and he, um, he got very sick. Well, it was the common class. It was his future in-laws that took him into their home, nursed him back to health, and put him on a seven-week cruise, which was understood in those days kind of recuperative you know, measures, and they took care of him and nursed him back to health. That was kind of the first kind of ironic twist. The second one um, was as he was finishing his doctorate, he had few prospects for work. He had been out of school for a time because he was sick. He lost his funding, and so he had to get a job. And so he turned to the easiest place for him to go, which was the pastorate. Well, he didn't want to go to the pastorate because he didn't want to be stuck in some backwater church with a bunch of uneducated and unsophisticated people. In fact, the last place that he would want to go is to a church like that. Well, during the time that he was preparing to go to this church, she sent him, Joanna, his fiance, sent him a romance novel of all books. It was called The Heir of Redcliffe. It was by a uh, British novelist. And in this story, okay, so he is just full of himself and then some. So in, in this story, the male lead was named Philip. And Philip was a deeply proud and ambitious man, an acad excellent in academics, very, very intelligent. And the characteristics, as he read the book of this Philip, was very similar and paralleled his. In fact, he said, it shouldn't surprise you, he said, I was fascinated with Philip's character. <laughs> it's looking in the mirror. You're handsome. <laughs> the drama turns that when Philip falls ill and he's saved by a cousin, he's saved by a cousin who comes and ministers to him, but the cousin, he had maligned throughout all the pages of the book. So the cousin comes and ministers to Philip. Philip gets healed but the cousin contracts a sickness and dies. Well, when Philip fell into despair, seeing his own limitations and the moral superiority of his cousin, and he was cut to the quick. And here's what he says. Oh, what my soul experienced at that moment, I only understood later. Yet from that moment, I despised what I used to admire, and I sought what I had dared to despise. There began God's work on this man's soul, revealing to him his arrogance and academic pride. He said later, small wonder that I considered the rank Redcliffe next to the Bible <clears throat> in its meaning for my life. So the third irony, though, the third twist regarding his conversion is he gets placed in a podunk church out in Beast, Netherlands. And... Um, he was installed as pastor August 9, 1863. His theology was still suspect. And uh, here God would complete the work through the faithful witness of the saints. So he, this woman, <clears throat> I'm going to pronounce it, but I'm sure I'm just butchering it. But Picha Baltus, she was an uneducated woman. And she was a member of the church, but she wasn't going to the services. And she was known as a woman of deep spirituality, deep Calvinistic beliefs, and, but she chose not to go and meet with others in her home instead of going to the church. So he pays her a visit because he knows that she's not going because of the content of his sermons. And so here's what happened. 
Uh, Reverend Kuyper was standing at her house with his elder and spoke to her by name. Picha, how are you? I'm the new minister and thought I'd pay you a visit. He started talking to her about the pile of potatoes they had seen in the yard and whether it had been a good harvest. She refused to shake his hand, a rejection of his pastoral authority. She said, it's been good. But that's not really what you came here to talk about, is it? She then began to say, we were created for eternity. And that is what I'd like to talk to you about for a moment. The Lord took away her prejudice against him and says that she spoke to him about the things one needs in order to be able to live and die comforted. It lasted a full hour without him saying a single word. It was as if it was a foreign language to him. Now, he continued to go and visit her week after week, and they would have discussions on theology. And here's what he says, and I respect him for this. He says, I did not set myself against them, and I still thank God that I had made the choice I did. Their unwavering persistence has been a blessing for my heart, the rise of the morning star in my life. So he came to a full understanding of the greatness of Christ and the sovereignty of God. Now this would become a paradigm. I want you to see that this experience of him seeing the greatness of God over all things became a paradigm as to how he would view and live the rest of his life. He saw the sovereignty of God as preeminent over all things. So for him, the sovereignty of God wasn't simply in governance over salvation, but it was more cosmological. It was God's governance over all creation. All creation now is submitted to God. And and this is where we get the line that now through the gospel that Jesus has been handed standing above all things. It says in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, that he now stands above rulers, authorities, powers, and dominions for the church. And this is where he produced that famous line that many of you have heard when he said this, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And so he began to see life now under this rubric of the sovereignty of Christ over all things. God beginning to restore all things to himself. So this is the lens he used to look now, or used to look at life. And what he taught was this thing called the uh, sovereignty of spheres. Okay, so you know what a sphere of influence is. A, a sphere of influence is maybe in a part of life where you are giving influence to someone or something. So Kuiper began to preach and teach that all of creation has these sovereign spheres, that, that there's the sphere of the family and the sphere of government and the sphere of church, the sphere of art, the sphere of education, and that God is sovereign over every one of those spheres. And the paradigm that he saw in Scripture is that as a Christian, when we live in that sphere, we want to bring that sphere under the glory of God. So think about this for a minute. God is the creator of all things. And God created all things with a design. Well, when sin came into God's creation, it misdirected the design. And so Kuiper saw that now that God has established himself in Christ, that now in every sphere of his life, he's going to determine what the creational design of that sphere is. How, for example, the family. How will the family work? And we draw from God's word and God's teaching. We see the creational design for the family. We see how sin has misdirected it. And we now move in light of God's word to bring that part of my life, 
back under, moving in a creational design as God originally intended it. So you take the, you take the creational air or the sphere of art. Art was given to us by God to display his beauty and the beauty of creation. We've turned it into a, perhaps a, a self-promotional sphere. And so he says, no, enter art, but do it for the beauty of God. Or government. Government has been given to us to bring order and justice to our creation. It has been warped by sin. So now we enter government, but we enter government not for our purposes or just to push our agenda, but to bring it back to the design that God had. And so he began to look at life as if these spheres, in each sphere of his life, he was going to see the sovereignty of God manifest um, through his efforts. And, through, and, and that was his cultural engagement. That was his strategic uh, priority was to engage the culture with the sovereignty of God in every area. So let me just explain it in his life. So that's the paradigm. He's living his life now. He knows that God is sovereign over all things. And so how is God's sovereignty going to be meted out in the various spheres of his life? So he was a man of politics. Kuiper saw that human governments were given to, given to us by God. Revel, uh, Romans 13, 1 Peter 3 um, and that even though he had no formal training, he had no political theory, he had no economics training, he moved into politics. He knew that after the fall, government was given the sword so as to restrain evil. And so he moved into politics. In fact, he moved out of the pastorate to go into the legislature. And he did. He occupied both houses of the Dutch government, as well as he ended up leading the, he actually ended up uh, beginning a whole new political party. The first democratic popular party in Holland was instituted, initiated by him. And not only did, not only did he lead 13 parliamentary um, campaigns, uh, but he ended up becoming the prime minister of the Netherlands. I mean, he moved in politics seeking to bring it back into a republic. He understood because his theology was God is sovereign, so he wanted to move away from the monarchy because the monarchy was too close to looking like the monarchy that God should have over our lives. And he knew the sinfulness of man, and so he knew that a constitution had to be put in order to, to guard against, um, to guard against um, anarchy and to guard against just, um, um, not anarchy, but um, oligarchy or you know just a, a, a monarchy that's gone off rail. So... He would end up, and he bore all, all kinds of criticisms for this. He was called Oliver Cromwell. He was called a demagogue. But he would bring scripture to bear in all of his engagement in his politics. But not just a man of politics. He was a man of the pen. He saw to write to influence culture. He was a journalist for 46 years. He, by the time he was 29, he was the editor of one paper. By the time he was 31, he was editor of two papers. One was the Herald, which was trying to bring about uh, educational reform in Holland. The other one was the Standard, which was a Christian daily newspaper of which he would write thousands of articles, meditations. He would write on theology, philosophy, history. But he saw these, he saw these papers as a way to influence the culture with Christian belief, with Christian doctrine, with the nature of the gospel. And he would hold these positions until he was 82 years of age. But not just was a man of politics and the pen, he was a man of learning. 
He saw that education was a sphere of God. And so he sought to bring about, you know, at the time, of course, Holland had public education, but it was government run. And, and the state and the church were locked arm in arm. And so all the institutions were run by the state and then liberal theology. And so he put forth and the law was enacted for private free education at the secondary level and at the primary level. Not only that, but in 1880, he actually started Free University of Amsterdam. He started a university. And it's called free, not because of the tuition, but it was free from governmental control and the theological oversight of a liberal church. And he would be the rector magnificus, or the president of that, and he taught theology, dogmatics, he taught history and philosophy about until just a few years before he died. So he wanted to see God's glory manifest in education, in journalism, in politics. But he was also a man of the church. His master's thesis, as well as his doctoral dissertation, were on the church. He loved the church. The last church he had was the largest church in Amsterdam, 130,000 members. 5% went to church. And, and he, what was happening, he, he was a man ahead of his times. He knew that what was beginning to bake in the church was this individual spirituality. Uh, he called it a Jesus-only religion, that I've got spirituality, but I don't need the church. And so in his inaugural sermon, he preached about being rooted and grounded. He said the nature of the church is first organic. There has to be life in the individual members through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That was essential. And yet you needed the institutional brick and mortar, the building, to administer the sacraments, to preach the word on a weekly basis, to bring discipline in the lives of the saints. They both were needed. It would be like a modern day version of, there's a, a contemporary book called The Trellis and the Vine. You know, when you think about a trellis and a vine, you, you don't build the trellis just for the sake of the trellis. But if you don't have a trellis, then the vine doesn't have something to grow up and be fruitful. You need both. The trellis supports the vine. But we don't just look at the trellis. So we don't want to be all institutionally focused. But at the same time, we don't want to be organically focused as if we don't need the church. And so he would work diligently to try to have them coexist. But he was also a family man. He wasn't just about politics and journalism and education and the church. He had five sons and two daughters. His marriage was strong. As far as I could tell, there was not a lot about it. Uh, she died early in 1899 at the age of 58. Uh, but he practiced in the sphere of his family. He would have devotions in the evening. They would read scripture. They would pray. So he practiced in the home what he was preaching outside of the home. So when you look at his life, he, he was overwhelmed that God is sovereign that in Christ now, all things have been reconciled, and now God is renewing all things to himself through Christ. And so he began to see that in each sphere of his life. He looked at his political life, he looked at his journalistic life, he looked at his educational life, he looked at his ecclesial life, and he looked at his, his life of the family, and how is God and his glory and his creational intent being manifest in each one of those areas. Okay, now you may be thinking, this guy's some superhero, his diligence and his work and all that sort of thing. And, and he really was, even his enemies thought, wondered if he ever slept. 
but, but he was a man who had great struggles. He had physical struggles. His first, he had a nervous breakdown at 25. He would have another nervous breakdown before. They would have to send him away three times a year uh, because of the workload that he carried and the things that he did. Um, he would have uh, increased sickness, fitness, uh, fits of dizziness. He faced professional struggles. In each one of the spheres that he was seeing God's glory try to be manifest, he faced an opposition in politics. Some of the cartoons that I saw, you know, caricatures of him in life, were just very, very um, mocking and, and jeering to his person. Um, he faced conflict in the church because of a liberal church. He's bringing a a very strong tonic of the gospel. He would face conflict in education because he was going against the whole Dutch government because he's trying to bring free education, free from their control. And he really faced opposition in every sphere as he tried to move it back to God's creational intent. Uh, He would lose a son at nine years of age. He would lose another son in the faith later on in life. And he lost his wife, as I said, at 58 And here's his words at her bedside. He says, There lay your deceased, lifeless for all the word, for all the world, as if she had been swallowed up by death, all at once gone, the look of the eye, the sweet words, everything clean gone. And yet God's word, without it in any way discounting the harshness of that reality, turns it around for you. It opens your soul's eye to see that in Jesus' resurrection, the devouring process has been reversed. So he, she would die. He would continue. She died in 1899. He died in 1920. So all the way through 1919, he continued slaving away and working at all of his labors in politics and education and the church and the like. And here is the final remarks at his funeral were given by his son, by his son who kind of summed up his life. And think about this in light of all those accomplishments. Probably the biggest man that, that, that um, at least in the last hundred years, that Holland has produced. His son said this, We, his children, know that he was redeemed as a poor sinner who by faith had found peace in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, all, our obituaries are just testimonies to what we've done. Just, just, just lines of accomplishments as to what we've produced. And yet the final remarks of a son to his father He's a poor sinner, but he was redeemed, and he found peace with Christ. That's the gospel, isn't it? I mean, you're standing before God. Your accomplishments aren't there. It's a redeemed poor sinner by faith, trusting that God in his mercy has provided for us a son to bear our sin, shame, guilt, so that we might be reconciled to God. It's a beautiful gospel. So so what do we do with this? Well, you know, he does give us a, a good paradigm, a lens to look through how can we be Christians in a culture that seems to be kind of marginalizing the faith. And, and so I just have some thoughts for you, and, and um, maybe one will strike you, maybe two. First, I'd like you to think, so, so when you walk out of here, you're in a culture, and the culture is not promoting, encouraging drawing forth your faith. So how do we do this? So he becomes an example. Number one, we have to remember that God's ways are counterintuitive. God's ways are counterintuitive. Um, Consider the irony, for example, of how this proud man was nursed back to health by this common family. Or consider the irony of how this, this intelligent, 
and proud heart was pricked by a romance novel. Or consider how this, this proud, arrogant preacher who didn't want to go to some small backwater church was changed by some uneducated woman who was firm in her faith. I mean, how many of you will just count yourself out because you don't have enough knowledge? I mean, how many of you right now think that my gifts aren't really useful or helpful? Maybe you're an encourager. Maybe you're a server. And those don't seem to be as significant as the gifts of teaching or, or something along those lines. I mean, how many of you tend to find yourself to be of no kingdom value because you've discounted yourself on some scale that you've created in your mind, that you're somehow less useful to the kingdom of God. What we see here is all those lower-rung people, if you would call them that, they were the ones making the moves. What I see in in Kuiper's life is that uh, intellectualism, academic strength, position, power, culture, they can be a detriment to faith. I mean, they can work against the faith. They don't promote it. And so you write yourselves off. Listen to what Paul says. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So take that one thought. If you've been hesitant to try something different for the glory of God, if you've been hesitant to take some step by faith towards another person or to get involved in a ministry or to teach or whoever, take the step by faith, knowing that God loves to use the weak. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, his power is perfected in weakness because our strengths don't get in and mix it up and confuse. Okay, the second thing I would say is that God uses imperfect humans for the tasks of his kingdom. God uses imperfect humans. You know, some of these biographies I do, I feel really close to the, the ones that I've studied. I think of John Newton. I mean, he, I would have loved him as a pastor. Um, Robert Murray McShane, I really felt close to him. Kuiper, it, it was a bit harder to get close to this guy. Um, perhaps it was his biographer, you know, that he didn't have a lot of personal anecdotes throughout the, throughout the biography. It was a big, dense book. Um, there's a, a book by Richard Mao that's much easier. I'd go to that 10 out of 10 times. Um, but I, I felt like Kuiper wouldn't like me. I, he, I'm impressed with him. He's incredibly diligent. He's incredibly powerful as a speaker, as an intellect. He was an or- they said the two traits that he had that were marvelous was he was an organizer and he was an order. I mean, he could speak and he could organize. And rarely do you see both those things in the same person, but he had them. He was very impressive. But, but I had trouble drawing near him because of his boldness and his brashness and, and his, his wit and his intellectual ability created some enemies that he didn't need to create. He was dogging in his views. And sometimes he would take very harsh stands. Like this is one that I would share with you. And it's distasteful to our ears, but I want to share it with you because I want you to see that even the heart of great men and women, there are still always areas to refine. He said this about the African culture. He said, no impulse for a higher life has ever gone forth from that part of the world. He makes a statement like that. Now, it reveals that he has clay feet. 
He does have clay feet, but God's people are a mixed people. You know, none of us have it all. None of us will ever have it all. He makes these foolish statements. But what impressed me most about that comment is that the black South African theologians actually liked Kuiper. They liked him. They drew from him. They showed the greater humility by drawing wisdom from him. They did not appreciate nor agree nor do we with his comment. But I love the fact that they could separate the comment from the balance of the man. And shouldn't we be doing that? I, I, I mean, all of us have these, these roots of ugliness in us that God's slowly working out, but can we not accept the person, even though maybe there's a strain within us? And, and we have to be able to do that in this culture. We can't, in, in a culture that is, that is surrounding the church, ultimately, I mean, we don't want to be pointing the guns at each other. We want to recognize that God uses imperfect humans. Okay, thirdly, God calls us to renew culture, not redeem culture. Now, this may rattle some of your pans. I think some of us think that we're called to redeem and change culture. I don't know that we can redeem culture until Christ come back, comes back in his fullness. Then he will redeem all culture. But we are testifying to the power of the gospel by renewing culture. Now, Kuiper, this is big for Kuiper. This is kind of his bread and butter, if you will. He picked up the cultural mandate, which was in Genesis 1.28, where God says to be fruitful and multiply, exercising dominion. He says it to the man and the woman. And what he's saying to them is this. He's saying, listen, this is my creation. You are my creatures. I want you to take my creation and make it expand to its fullness. Bring it to its greatest potential. Let it bring the greatest glory to me through the investment of your gifts and your talents and your strengths. Bring it forth in all of its glory. That's the cultural mandate. Okay, but sin has entered, right? And sin has entered and marred and corrupted the culture. But he would argue that it's still structurally good. The culture, creation, your cultivation, you know, it's still structurally good. It can be renewed through the power of the gospel. And so this is his idea with the spheres. So he would go into the sphere of, let's say, his family. I'm going to renew my family. Men, women, right now, you can look at your families, and you can see a measure of disorder in your families. The disorder, remember, we just, we just went through all the wisdom literature, and all the wisdom books are about God giving us wisdom to bring order back to the disorder that our sin causes. And so we, at, when we walk in the wisdom of God, things begin to become ordered again like God's creation. And so this cultural renewal idea is that you are to go into the various spheres of your life and you're to say, where is there disorder? And what is God's creational design? How has sin misdirected it? And how can I walk in light of God's word by bringing order to it? And so we would encourage you to move into art. Christians should be in art. They should be in art, and they should be doing art for the glory of God. Christians should be in politics, not to rule by might, but, but to begin affecting change that government would begin walking with justice and order. We want Christians in the university. You know, the modernist, uh, fundamentalist controversy of the early 1900s, you know, a lot, of these, a lot of the Christians pulled out of universities and they started their own works. No, we get back into the secular. Will it be easy? No, not at all. Not at all. But he's calling us to cultural renewal. And it's an important word for us today. Uh, 
Fourth, uh, God calls us to live gospel-integrated lives. What do I mean by that? Kuiper says this. He says, Christ does not tolerate us living a double life. Our lives must be one, controlled by one principle. In other words, the privatization of our faith, or the secularization of our faith, that is where we kind of separate our life. Well, this is my Christian life, but this is, hey, you got to do what you got to do in the office, Tom, to get by. I'm like, no, you don't. Don't get by. You, you, don't separate. Don't, don't secularize this life as if God isn't sovereign over you in your office. God's not sovereign over you in your home. God's creational design is in every sphere of your life. And he wants all these spheres to be under his authority and us walking in a manner that's consistent with our Christian belief. So look at your lives right now. Do you try to play that dichotomous role of, well, I am a Christian, I read my Bible, but when I go back into the marketplace, I've got to be a tiger. Do you create, where are the dichotomies in your life? Maybe invite instruction from someone who's near you, who loves you, and ask them, do you see any sort of hypocrisy or any sort of dichotomy between the way I am here versus the way I am here? As you know, I'd often ask my kids, do you see me different at church versus the home? If you do, you'd hate me if you don't tell me. So tell me if you see that. So we want to make sure, and we're all hypocrites. I mean, we all have pockets of hypocrisy. That's the joke of I don't go to church because they're full of hypocrites. And, you know, the great line is, well, come, join us, you'll feel right at home. You know, all of us are hypocrites. But, but, But let's identify them. And confess them. That's how we rid ourselves of hypocrisy, is by not promoting a picture of who we are that's not true to form, or not true to reality. So, so where are those areas? You know, are your politics and the way you look at politics, how does God influence your political decisions? Now, we're in a political season now. And so do we listen to candidates from a clear, not just a financial bent, you know, not just in terms of their economic policies, not just simply from a policy of, of on the world stage and security, but what, how do they line up with us in terms of our Christian belief, our understanding of God's sovereignty? It's a key, key way to look at a, a candidate, not to hold their platform against, you know, some set of paradigms that you draw, but all of God is sovereign over all things, and so how do they line up with that? or your family, or what you like about art, or the entertainment you enjoy, or the work that you do. How does it relate with God? Then I would say uh, another one would be God's kingdom revealed through the local church. Uh, Don't neglect the value of the church. You know, there's a major shift that has continued. You know, we're probably, I don't know, 50 years behind Europe or something like that. We tend to pick up what they have just later. And, And there is an increasing spirituality in this country, And there is an increasing um, section of our culture that would identify themselves as nuns. In other words, they have no church affiliation. They want spirituality, but they don't want the institutional aspect of spirituality. Now, I understand churches can be awkward. They can be strange. They got, you got, we're all different people. We're all special though, aren't we? That's the language of the day. We're all special and we're all unique and we have trophies for every one of you when you leave here. <laughs> but, but, but the church is. The, the church is a mixture of people that you may not be friends with if they weren't coming to the church here. And, and yet this is where 
God has chosen to display his wisdom through the church. In fact, Russell Moore, an ethicist, uh, says these words. He says, saying I love Jesus, but not the church, is as irrational as saying to your best friend, I like you, but I can't stand being with you. A, A local church with all of its ridiculous flaws is an unveiling of the mystery of the universe. It's a colony of the coming global reign of Christ, a preview of what the kingdom will be like. That's the church. Now, Kuiper gives a great analogy for the church and the kingdom. So the kingdom of God is like a cathedral being built, right? And the church is like the scaffolding around the church, around the cathedral. So, you know, in the old, go back 250 years, there's no cranes, there's no lifts, nothing like that. They keep building scaffolding up, and as they build the scaffolding up, the cathedral is being built within the scaffolding. And you can kind of get an outline of the cathedral by the scaffolding. The scaffolding is not the building, but it looks similar to it. And that's the relationship between the local church and the kingdom of God, that we are not a perfect representation of the kingdom, but we look like it. We're promising it. We're kind of the foretaste of it. And so your involvement in the church, not just the I love Jesus, but I love Jesus' friends. And I want to be intersecting my life with them, even though they're awkward. Because, because we are the display. He died for the church. He didn't die for individuals. He meant to collect them into a family. Okay, the last thing is very important, is that um, living as a Christian in a, increasingly, uh, in a culture increasingly marginalizing Christianity to the sides is that we are triumphant, but we're not triumphalists. Let me explain what I mean by that. We're triumphant, but we're not triumphalists. What I mean by that is that we're called to be humble. Like when we read Kuiper say, Jesus said, every square inch is mine. That can promote a Christian militancy. It can promote a Christian, you know, might makes right. And that can promote this sort of arrogant, um, yeah, arrogant feel to the church. And Mark Nola, historian at the University of Notre Dame, said these. He said, remember that the road to Calvary was the road that the Lord Jesus took to win his place of command. So, so what that means is, yeah, Jesus is above all things, but he went through a cross to get there. And so for us, though we are triumphant in Christ, we are humble, we are gracious. In our political discussion, we are gracious, we're discerning, We're balanced. Our hope is not in a political party. Our hope is not in in some political change. Our hope is in Christ and him alone. And that may involve a degree of suffering. To suffer for the name of Christ is not to fail at being triumphant. We are in Christ. But, But his place of authority was through a cross. And it will be for his church as well. So, so we want to be gracious. We want to be clear. We want to be informed. We want to speak with clarity on whatever, whatever position you hold. But we do it without the, without the rancor and the anger and the bitterness and the fear. The fear. Many of us have a dependence on a candidate. And, um, and, and there's this... There's this swing that the church takes between delight over victory and a candidate winning and despair over a candidate losing, you know what? That's not us. Christ is sovereign over all things. We're going to walk out and we'll have some sermons prior to the 
um, the vote coming in November, but, but I, I thought it was a good time to kind of highlight we are triumphant, but we're not triumphalists. Okay, now all of this is possible because of Jesus Christ. So I want you to understand that us being able to walk, um, bringing the gospel to bear in the spheres is because, um, because of Christ, because he has suffered for our sins, he has, he has paid the penalty, he is the picture of the justice of God bringing wrath on ungodliness, and yet the love of God, that the grace that we've been saved by. So, so let's take a minute and just consider these things in the life we have. We see that he saw the sovereignty of God over all things, and he began to just work that out in the different spheres of his life. It may bring up conviction for you, that you might want to repent of some dichotomies in your life. This might be a good time to ask for grace or encouragement, that you're going to take a step out even though you don't feel strong in your faith. Uh, but let's let this be a time of meditation with God, and then the elder is going to close us in just a moment.